Attention listeners, do you ever find yourself struggling to decide what to watch on a Saturday night when you're in the mood for horror? Or perhaps you're trying to round out your own horror film education. In either case, I'm sure you'll be able to make some great discoveries in my 10x10 horror watch list, featuring a breakdown of the 10 favorite horror movies from 10 renowned horror directors. We did a deep dive of the favorite horror movies from directors including Guillermo del Toro, Ari Aster, Jordan Peele, Quentin Tarantino, James Gunn, Rob Zombie, Martin Scorsese, and many, many more. Here you'll find a collection of each director's favorite horror movies, along with quotes about what they appreciated about the films, all in an easy-to-reference PDF that you can download absolutely free. Featuring a mix of well-worn classics and deep cuts, hopefully you'll discover some overlooked gems and look at old classics through new lenses. Download the 10x10 Horror Watch List for free by visiting nicktaylor.com slash horrorguide. That's nicktaylor.com slash horrorguide. One last thing before we begin, and this is my email newsletter, The Howl. The Howl is a monthly rundown of the latest horror news along with my hand-picked movie recommendations, updates from the show, and cool stuff I've recently discovered, all in one quick read email delivered to your inbox only once a month. Easy to read, easy to sign up for, and easy to cancel. Join the Howl newsletter by visiting nicktaylor.com slash the howl. That's nicktaylor.com slash the howl. Welcome back to the Nick Taylor Horror Show. As always, each episode of the Nick Taylor Horror Show explores how today's horror filmmakers are getting their movies made while deconstructing their methods and career strategies into practical insights that you can use on your own horror filmmaking journey. This includes creative processes, funding resources, favorite books and tools, key life lessons, and much, much more. Join me today in welcoming Vincent Grashaw. Vincent is a writer-director known for films like Cold Water and Then I Go and last year's stunner, What Josiah Saw. What Josiah Saw is a Southern Gothic psychological horror drama that takes us deep into the heart of a highly dysfunctional family's grim reunion at their remote farmhouse. The film unravels a tapestry of secrets and sins, ultimately confronting the profound impact of generational traumas. With an exceptional ensemble cast, including Robert Patrick, Nick Stahl, Scott Hayes, and Kelly Garner, what Josiah saw is a very powerful and unflinching piece of southern fried noir cinema. The film holds a rightfully earned 90% on Rotten Tomatoes, and you can catch it right now on Shudder. I highly recommend this film, but be careful who you watch with because it gets pretty intense. Without further ado, please enjoy this conversation with Vincent Grashaw. I didn't know what to expect watching the trailer, but uh, the whole thing was, I don't know, it reminded me of like old Robert Mitchum movies or like V1 Robert Mitchum movie, meaning um, Night of the Hunter. It had like a modern Southern Gothic feel to it throughout, but um, yeah, I mean, overall, just the story, the performances, the dread of it all. I, it's one of my favorite horror movies of the year, movies of the year in general. So 
you know, huge awesome. congrats. First oh, of all, thanks. really enjoyed the hell out of it. And, uh, yeah, I loved how fucked up it was. You know, you know, I gotta, I gotta give a lot of credit to the writer in terms of, you know, I, I, I haven't read or seen a ton of Southern Gothic movies. Um, okay. You know, I had the feeling about how I would shoot this and how I really felt it would need to be executed. But, I, you know, Robert's script is just something you read in it. In it, it, I think we executed the movie the exact way the script was. Yeah. And so you can sense the writing very, very much in that in the movie. Um, and that was obviously my goal to really like, you know, Robert Patrick even it, it really was passionate about saying the words the way they were written mm. because Robert wrote that script basically, you know, in the dialect that they were speaking. And, and so, so they really, all the actors really wanted to honor the script too. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's definitely the, uh, the darkest movie I, I hope I ever make. <laughs> I, don't, <laughs> I don't think you could get much darker without going all Serbian film. Thematically, no, no. I think yeah, it, uh, it it's pretty dark. But yeah, what was given how dark it is? How, what was the process like in pitching it and getting it made? I mean, you said you were working on doing that for about six years. Well, um, didn't have a lot of success pitching it. I mean, there there was a few production companies I had met with, and you know, it just never went. It, it never got that far along. Everyone was always like very strong writer but you should do this, this, and this, you should, um, you should intercut the chapters and not have them broken up. And anytime somebody would say something like that, I was just like, Oh, they don't get it. This is not for them. Like this yeah. is not the movie I'm going for. Um, I think if they did that, it would, the movie's not even no way. And so right. I don't, I didn't really take a lot of like production company meetings just to be honest like i don't think a production company has ever said yes to a movie i wanted to make it like it, it was never like i got involved typically it's private equity investor and um, yeah that's what happened sort of on all my films you know you, you there's sort of the right time and um josiah what happened was i had been trying to get that made many years to almost had it made a couple times as well and each time like i said it's like a like a dagger when you have the money and then it falls apart. And that happened with Josiah twice. Um, but what, how it got made is, um, random mix productions. They, they are new to the business. Um, they deal, they deal a lot with, you know, several kinds of companies and, but this is their, that was their first, um, first, uh, venture into film. And, um, they wanted to do a movie and they wanted to do it fast and it wasn't cash contingent cast contingent. It was, oh, wow. What's this project? We like it. Let's go. Obviously we want to get names in it, but you know, let's just get the right people and then make it. And they wanted to move quickly. And so the overnight, you know, it was like, wow, wow, we're making this finally. Beautiful. It was the first movie I got made around the time I really was the most passionate about it. Oh, that's so amazing. really, really felt like my baby at that time um, yeah which is hard you know because like you want to make a movie and suddenly five years in you're like i hate this story <laughs> <laughs> like sometimes yeah. you grow out of it in a weird way if you're lucky it um, evolves with you it did absolutely it wouldn't yeah. have been the same movie five years ago um and so thankfully they got involved and and judder picked up the film 
did a great job marketing it. We loved the trailer they did and the, and the campaign they did. Um, they're really great. Obviously, huge horror buffs. So um, it was exciting partnering up with them after we, we premiered at Fantasia. Um, but we had waited a year because of the pandemic. So oh. we had finished the movie September 2020 and didn't want to just dump it virtually and waited a year and um, decided to go with Fantasia. Um because that was like around the time things festivals were not doing virtual anymore. Yeah. Um, but um, yeah, it was interesting because I remember when we were finished, it, the pandemic was in a place where like drive-ins were kicking ass. And like even a part of me was like, oh, we should have really tackled that. But this isn't a drive-in movie, as you know. Like it right. would just be awkward. <laughs> <laughs> be a silent drive home. That's for sure. Yeah. No. <laughs> Well, I think one of the things about the movie that's remarkable from a directorial perspective is the consistency of tone and the kind of specificity of of the vision of the movie. It feels like it just essentially wasn't fucked with, which is why I'm, I'm not surprised to hear private equity was behind it, because it sounds like you had a lot of free reign um, in terms of just creating this specific tone and story and kind of world. I mean, it feels like a world that's very, very grounded. But it does have its own sort of, you know, universe feel in a way, if that makes if that makes sense. But um, I mean, I guess the question in that is, what was it like communicating that tone and that world and that vision to all of the people that you had to communicate it to? Because it felt so cohesive, you know, in that regard. And I'm I'm curious about how that was communicated to the actors people you were working with like ad's and whatnot um like how were you able to keep that consistency you know i having lived with that project for so long i knew this script in and out um and i i definitely am the type of filmmaker that i know what i want i know how to communicate it and i think everyone like when you get these quality actors like robert patrick nick stall tony hale these people i can't tell you how much easier a job is when you get to work with these kind of quality actors because you hire them and they they know what they're doing you trust them and and we have a, most of that most of those conversations are in pre-production because by yep. the time you're filming it's go time time costs money you don't have the, the luxury to really sit and, and try things and it, you just don't not on a uh a sub million dollar movie that um in, in 20, I think Josiah was 22 days. Um, you know, Nick Stahl, I had a conversation with him on the phone. And first day I met him was the first day on set, showing up the day one of his film. And, and I'm like, all right, get in here and uh, here's a shovel. And uh, <laughs> um, that was sort of, that's sort of how, I guess, rinky-dink indie filmmaking can be at times. Right. Like you're just forced into you know, hoping for the best sometimes. And it's why I really am overprepared. Like I, I, it's important to me to do all that work in the times I'm developing it for years and as well as the official pre-production. And so, you know, it, it was the first movie also that the cinematographer, the production designer and my wardrobe, it was so important that everyone was in sync with like the color palettes and the tone, like you said, because and it was the first time I even at me as a filmmaker realized how how important that is and right. what it actually does 
to your subconscious as a viewer, like to really, uh, I'll give you an example, like Blue Ruin, mm-hmm. like that movie with between the cinematography, the wardrobe and, and production design is so in sync. And I don't know what I bring from the blue tones necessarily, but there's something in your subconscious going, I like, I like this palette or something's like, it, it just gets to you. Yeah. Um, I had that sort of reaction as a kid. One of my favorite movies from Spike Lee was he got game sort of, and it did that with my, it, it messed with me in a good way with, with the cinematography and the mm. music. Is that, I don't know if you've seen that. Oh movie. yeah. I saw it in the theater. Yeah, me too. Um, I was 17. And when I saw that, I, w- I just was in awe, like between the editing and, and the cinematography, especially in music, there was just something about it that just got in my head. Yeah. Um, and there's those things that, you know, hopefully translate to audiences. And I hope he did a good job with that with Josiah, because I, I it was definitely intentional uh, with the collaborative effort, you know? Yeah. 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 I've in some movies, I, there's a, there's a speed or like, there's a kind of BPM of the movie to use musical terms. There's like a, it's, there's, there's something lyrical about the pace that the movie operates at. And the actors all seem to, on certain movies, be in sync with that pace and call it tone or whatever. But I mean, again, I just, I, I keep re-gravitating towards the consistency and how everybody was so on the same page. Uh, and yeah, it amazed me to hear that you had done pretty much no rehearsals, right? Yeah, no. I mean, no, no rehearsals. No um, rehearsals. I did on and then I go with the kid actors because you know when you deal with like twelve year olds, fourteen year olds, it's like pivotal. Like, yeah, I did a lot of that. But this movie, you know, you're bringing out that kind of cast, you just, and and you just don't have the luxury to have them for that long. Yeah, and so um, you're lucky to even have them at the, the amount of money that we have. So, you know. This movie, it's one of those things where it, 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 I'm, it's, it's a long movie. You have to invest in it as a viewer. Yeah. And I think the people that if you're distracted watching this or you're going in and out of the room or you're on your phone, you may hate the movie because it's not that kind of viewership uh, experience, viewing mm-hmm. experience. It's, it's something you really, if you just turn on at night, it and sort of really watch these characters it's it's sort of an earned horror movie I yeah would say you yeah. know did you put your collaborators cast and crew on any sort of a cinema or literary diet did you say like hey you guys got to watch this you got to read cormac mccarthy was there anything to get everybody in the rhythm of this movie that you you gave them ahead of time no not really i mean i would say outside of um my DP, when we were comparing sort of visual references, you know, I'd built a ton of like those and, and edited like a, a sizzle of cinematography and, and, mm-hmm. and color palettes and stuff like that. But no, not really. I mean, it's 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 kind of funny. Like I also I mean, it depends which crew position, like my composer, I had built a script. I call it a music uh, reference script. And I create a whole script from the movie. I take the script and I bold areas that will have, um, that I really feel will have music gore, yeah. or, and or songs. Um, and I, I sort of color code it. 
And so when I and I write, I'll put in like YouTube uh, clips of exact moments of all right. In this cue from this movie, here's the sort of reference I'm using in the in the, in the temp score to help guide their composer. Like, and so it's sort of a bible, and I do all that in pre. And um, you know, so something like that, I'll really he can listen all those reference cues and see where my head's at. Yeah, and then we take it and run with it. Um, but you know, it, sort of, the, it's like saying just because you do a horror movie that the experience needs to be intense. Like I think the scarier and the most more disturbing the project is, the more fun and light it is behind the scenes. Of yeah, crew. like you know, we're having a blast. We're shooting scary shit, and then all of a sudden we're laughing like, "Wow, we got it! Oh, this shot's great!" Like you could sense the energy when we were filming mm-hmm. every day. It would start off shitty. We're behind or you know, something screwed up. And then by the end of it, my DP's jumping on my back because we got great stuff, you know? That's such a good feeling. Yeah, I was wondering about that. I mean, with the, the, the nuance to the performances in this movie, and again, it's specificity of tone, it requires time to get what you need to get out of these actors. And I mean, I've been on film sets before, and a lot of times the AD is like, all right, you guys got 15 minutes and then we have to move on. How were you able to create an environment that allowed you to get what you needed to get out of these actors? Was it a, you know, a, a conversation with the AD or what, or do the actors just, you know, produce like, what was it like getting it out of the actors? I mean, and then, yeah, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna pretend that on films it's all hunky dory and there's not hiccups or problems or, you know, I can say like on certain budget levels, you're not, you don't have the luxury to really do much more than, some conversations in pre, like I said, but you know, one of the hard, I mean, I'll speak, you know, I'll single Scott Hayes out to this role specifically for Thomas, because it's the hardest role to, to do in the movie. I thought yeah. like that role is, 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 is if you, if that role did not work, I think the movie totally shits the bed. And, and so there was a lot of pressure on him and he, he was attached three or four years before we made it. So he was the only one that I had attached for, for a long period of time. And, and he just got it. Like he, he really knew um, what I was going for. And, and I don't know if you're familiar with his work. God, he was so familiar in the movie. I didn't, I couldn't recall. He did a movie. Well, when I saw him in a movie called um, child of God, which was a Cormac McCarthy um, book adaptation mm-hmm. uh, that James Franco directed. He'd done several projects with James Franco, um, but I had seen Child of God, and I was I was sort of instantly blown away by his performance in that. The movie's okay, not really the greatest movie, but mm-hmm. his performance was like it put him on the top ten variety actors to watch list. And you know he's done some really great work since then on a lot of movies, but. Um, we talked a lot about that role and how important it was to sort of, you know, I never wanted, I, I just never wanted it to be gimmicky. You know, I, I wanted it sort of his performance and his character to be grounded in like an innocence and like a curiosity. Yeah. You know, without spoiling, I don't know, is this a spoiler? Free, uh, no, people usually, I usually advise listeners to see the movie before you listen. So yeah, you can get into spoilers. Plus this is officially a spoiler alert. So listeners, if you haven't 
seen the movie skip ahead anyway but yeah <laughs> let it rip well yeah i mean but you know there's there's um a lot to his character that i didn't want it to be like you know i hate in movies where there's there's like characters that their motivation is just insanity or something yeah, like, yeah. Or they're just losing their mind like uh, it needed to be grounded in in some some form of um I guess trauma that's relatable, not, mm-hmm. you know, not just, you know, people going crazy and losing their shit, but like, where did that come from? And why is it a tragedy? And, and, and you know, well, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. why, cause it is sort of, you know, the loss of like this family, like, and, and where they are 30 years later. Mm-hmm. I'd be remiss if I didn't ask what it was like working with Robert Patrick. I'm a huge fan of that guy. And I feel like I'm seeing more of him than ever, which is great. And, you know, these very deep performances. So how did he get involved in in this project? Yeah. um, I got lucky uh, with him. Um, One of my friends who is an actor had worked with him before. And uh, his name is Ronnie Blevins. And he plays one of the guys who goes with Nick Stahl's characters to the carnival. Mm-hmm. Um, really great actor. He just came out in a movie called Emancipation, the Will Smith movie. Um, okay. Done a lot. He just works a ton. He's got this great face and you know, he, he's great. Yeah. Um, he was like, I was casting for this role. And initially in 2015, I had cast Michael Parks. Oh, um, wow. I could totally see it. Yeah, and and I had me and Scott Hayes had actually hung out with him a couple, or I hung out with him a few times. But Scott and Hayes and I, we did rehearse a little bit at Scott's theater. Um, He has like this black box theater in North Hollywood, and Michael Parks came, and I had been given heads up about him. They were like, "Look, you know, he's not in the best health. You can barely talk." Oh man! And um, so once we, I finally met him, and we did some rehearsing. I can't tell you how fucking crazy that was. He, I didn't know if he was talking to me or performing. Holy shit. So it was like, we're sitting there with the script and he's doing these things. And then he starts staring at me and he's doing these things. And I look at Scott and Scott is sort of a, not method, but he's very, his process is very intense. And, but he is like his mouth dropped and he's got this huge grin on his face. And we're like, I don't know what's happening, but, this guy's like special. I wow. get why everyone was like, this guy's um, amazing. Like sort of a, this dark horse of an actor. Yeah. And um, I even have some video from that somewhere. Oh, wow. But, um, yeah. And, and But after that, Scott and I talked and we're like, I think he's dying. Like, I, I think he's not going to be around much longer, unfortunately. And, yeah. and he wasn't. He, he passed away shortly after that. Which was really sad, but um, you know, we we went and uh, uh, you know the movie wasn't getting made at the time for another three years. But when we revisited it, um, I talked to a couple people, um, other actors. We were very close to actually um, casting John Travolta, oh. which would have been really interesting. Yeah, um, I thought he would have been a a, a very a unique take on that um 
that character because he had never done anything like that. And yeah. I had some conversations with him and it was really, really great guy. Like I, I'm looking, I'm hoping to work with him at some point, but um, I think, you know, you, you get to that scene and people have really had issues with that scene in the movie with yep. him and Scott Hayes about a third. I know the one, the one, the scene. And, um, you know, luckily mo- most of the actors that we had talked to, like Travolta and, and um, uh, we talked to a couple others and they were like, don't change it. It's, it's needed for the movie. Um, but uh, I know I can go there. I just don't want to go there. Uh. And uh, that was sort of like, it was hard. And even Robert was a little reluctant to, when I got on this FaceTime with him, um, you know, he was like, I don't know. I just don't. And he's like, listen, send me your best film that you've made. I'll watch it right now and I'll call you after and I'll tell you my answer. Wow. And I sent him and then I go and he watched it and he called me right after. He goes, God damn, I guess I got to do this. <laughs> damn. Yeah. So we're doing this. Like he, he's just such a gem. Like he, yeah. he's, he's a fun guy. He's funny as hell. Um, and he came to work. Like he, he, he really, had a lot of material he had to get to know. Like there's yeah. a lot of dialogue and, you know, he came, he came with it and he's, he's terrifying. <laughs> yeah. He's palpable in that, oh, the whole movie. Yeah. Those eyes, he's got these really intense blue eyes and coincidentally, all the actors we cast in the family all have these blue eyes. Oh, that worked out. I, yeah. It wasn't something that I was like adamant for. Right. Casting for blue Kelly eyes. Garner, yeah, Kelly Garner, Nick Stahl, um, they all have these really intense blue eyes. Yeah. I had heard you in another interview talk about how when you're casting, you make sure to vet actors, which I feel is so critical. Um, it's everything. Yeah, because I feel like uh, it, it just takes one person to completely sour the vibe of a film set. Could you talk about how you do that, you know, for people who are casting their movie and they're one, they're, they don't yeah. want to be awkward about it, but like, how do you properly vet actors to make sure, you know, they're, yeah. they're going to be peaceful and work hard right. on a film? Well, especially if it's like the main roles that you're going to be stuck with for two to four weeks, that's like, you know, you can't, you know, not every actor you cast for a day player or two days, like you don't know how they're yeah. going to be necessarily, but for like the main ones, there's a lot of thought that goes into an offer. When you're making an offer, like <laughs> you've really, you know, you've selected somebody or you're going to basically be stuck with in a marriage for or family for like a month. So with that, when, when we're thinking of names and stuff, I always look at the producers of the movies they've recently done. Um, I look to see if any actors I know have worked with them. And then if I do, in a lot of times, the actors that I'm going for, I do know somebody that has either knows them or heard about them or I'll ask casting directors about them. I just, I, it's just such a big deal because you finally get your movie financed and made. The last thing you want is to do work with somebody who's a difficult asshole. And not to mean difficult like in their process. Right. But there's some actors and some everybody in every position, there's... I've worked with nightmare producers before. Like you, 
it's just it sours so much of your experience that you spend so long to get the thing finally going yeah and so really it's just asking questions like how are they to work with are they down to play ball like what's their when do they get cranky like what sets them off where and and you really just get to know and a lot of times you'll have those you know things that trigger like red flags of the past and you'll be like nope don't want to deal with that i've been there before you know so we'll just go to the other person on the list you know yeah yeah um, it's important yeah i think for cast and i mean and crew and producing partners like i feel like vetting is so important yeah yeah that's really smart um so you shot the movie in oklahoma right yeah how was that as a location well, I mean, the movie was sort of written as in, in Texas, but mm -hmm. for the most part, um, you know, Random X and, and my investors, they they were like, look, you know, uh, we we want a rebate that's going to be able to put more money on screen. And so we shot in, you know, Oklahoma was relatively new at the time to the incentive program. They okay. had a fantastic rebate. And so... I think it's 35%. Whoa. And we ended up getting bumped up to 37% um, because we used uh, music there and stuff like that to qualify. And so, yeah, I mean, 37% incentive. And Oklahoma has a lot of the similar terrain as Texas. It just really fit. Yeah. Um, so and it was a healthy film community, but it was still early. Right now, everyone's filming there. Mm -hmm. Like, good luck getting in the queue now. Um, right but we were we were fairly we were just perfect timing um and it's just it's the people are so nice my only complaint was the allergies i had i would sneeze like 15 times a day oh what do they have a lot of pollen in the air yeah it's i guess flatland and, and yeah uh, you know i'm an la guy um it, you know it was just that would be my only complaint but i worked with some of the best crew i've worked with out there that's the best awesome. first AC I ever worked with um, uh, was out there, um, local. Uh, his name is Philip Bird. I'm sure he's, I think he was wanting to move up to be a DP. I think he's shooting now. I don't even, I don't know. I haven't talked to him in a minute, but fantastic crew. Awesome. And uh, and you hired a, lot, a number of local actors too, right? Pretty much all uh, other than the actors like that we brought out, which were, you know, the man four and then Jake Weber and Tony Hale, yep. Ronnie Blevins and then uh, uh, Winston, James Francis, who played the giant Mr. Miggs. Oh, yeah. Um, everyone else were, were pretty much locals, whether they're Dallas and drove in to be local or um uh, Oklahoma. Yeah. We had a, we had great, good casting sessions out there. Like actors like Ben Hall. Um, that guy's just awesome. He shows up in a bunch of movies, anything filming in Oklahoma, Ben Hall's going to be in the movie <laughs> without question. Like cool. you're just going to, you're going to cast him. Yeah. So what was, what was it like editing the movie yourself? I feel like some directors really enjoy editing their own movies for others. It's a very painful process. Uh, how was it for you? Um, well, it was the first film that I directed that I edited on my, I'll never go back as, as long as I am in that control. Um, you know, if I do a bigger studio movie, I'm sure I won't be able to do that. But, um, 
I love it. I, it it's not just editing. I, I just kind of consider editing and sound design and, and those sort of choices as directing now. Like, mm. the, there's no way where you hand a cut over of your movie that you didn't have a heavy hand in those transitions with sound and, right. and just the design of it um, and the selection of temp score and things like that. That's It's not just throw it in and, and play it under. Like, there's a design to it all. And I just, that's a, that's something I really love to do. And I think it saves time and money for the, the budget and, and having me do it. Um, and it moves things faster because I don't need to tell somebody, no, you're doing that wrong. Redo it or let's do it this way. Or, you know, I could just do it. Um, mm-hmm. I taught myself how to edit and do all that. I'm not like, you know, the, the, I don't know all the tricks in, in Adobe Premiere Pro, but that's what I edit on and, I cut it and then I hand it over to somebody else to do the conform, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Once you're done, but I don't know. It, it, I'm fast too. Like, so I, I, I like to get into it. You know, I take a couple of weeks off after finished shooting because your brain just needs to decompress. Yeah. It's, it's one of the weirdest things I've had in the last two films where right after wrapping for two weeks, every, every morning, every day I would have these like PTSD dreams that I'm still shooting and I need to get these shots. And, um, it's so crazy. I, it, it is a form of like trauma in a weird way when, cause you're going a hundred miles an hour. And once you wrap, everyone else kind of goes to other jobs or these things. And you're like mentally exhausted. You're like, wait a minute, I've been doing this for two months straight, 18 hours a day. And, it's just done like that. Right. You just can't slow down that quick. And at least on my last two films, Bang Bang and uh, Josiah, I've had that happen to me. Wow. Two weeks straight. It's weird. So it's, yeah, vacation time <laughs> after, after you rep. It, it's trench warfare. What'd you ask? It's got to be like a vacation time after you rep to just, to, you know, settle all of that PTSD down. Yeah. You, you, the last thing you want to do is do anything creative. I yeah. just, well, I, I was happy just like sweeping with a broom. Like I'd go outside and just sweep a broom, clean up something really like a menial task. Just do that. And I was like finding pleasure. In it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> You're, I mean, I think when you overtax your brain, those really simple tasks can be really satisfying. It's, oh, it's man. strange. I don't know how our monkey minds really work in that regard, but yeah. 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 No. And, um, but yeah, I think the editing process is for me. It's just such a vital part of it now, and yeah, um, I think on any movie that I'm involved with that I control, you know, the ad, the, the 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 movie, I would just be like, I'm editing, and and that's not to. I think it's so vital to get other opinions, and I have a circle of friends and editors and filmmakers, actors that I trust. That once I get a cut of the movie, or even while I'm editing, I'll show somebody, what do you think of this? What do you think of that? Mm-hmm. And just get some brutally honest opinions and what I've been doing over the last month with this latest movie, just having these sort of small screenings, um, unbiased people that don't even know me. I'll have like friends bring a friend and sort of get like feedback. Yeah. Industry people and non-industry. That's wise. Cause um, your friends are going to say, Oh, it's great. We loved it. But I think it's important. Yeah. Or even people that have worked on it. They're of course going to just be excited about how it come out. But it's for me, it's the people that, have no skin in the game and they're just going to tell you what's up. Yeah. Um, and then they'll give you opinions. And then another person with no skin in the game goes, 
I don't agree with anything they said. Right. And so you just got to weigh what's universal, what's the sort of real common notes. And, um, you know, uh, you make those decisions at the end of the day, but it's important to at least hear what they are. Yeah. For me. Yeah, for sure. And not take things personal. Like, right. It can be really easy to get to a place. And if somebody's complaining about something that's not working, it's really easy to defend it opposed to just going, huh? Like I got a real stupid note, a real bad, dumb note. And I'm like, if somebody gave this note, they're just not paying attention and they're not deep in it. Yeah. And, but that dumb note gave me such a good idea. And I hmm. did tried something to, to kind of without dumbing the movie down, but to, to, to address it, bless you. Thank you. Um, to address it. And it, it, it was awesome. Like I came up with something that really tackled that note for them and made the movie better. And so it's just mm. easy to get defensive. And that's why I don't really like writing much is because when you write, you're, you take things a lot more personal too. Yeah. You're a little less collaborative. You, it's a little harder to kind of fight that war. <laughs> yeah. That makes a lot of sense for sure. Yeah, and how, like, don't discount, like, a bad note, because within that bad note, there might be a germ of a good note in there, and, like, you know, you have to be forensic Absolutely. about these things. Yeah. I mean, the note sort of sparked the pickup scenes we did. It sparked mm. how I sort of ed added this little thing in the intro, and so I can't, you know, a dumb note sometimes is a freaking great note, mm. you know? I feel like that's a very big piece of advice. Yeah, it, it's kind of um, it's fascinating how that worked, actually. Yeah, I was like, oh, wow. So this wasn't yeah. the smoothest production from what I understand. There were burglaries and really important things got stolen. Could you tell us about <laughs> some of the mishaps that occurred on what Josiah saw? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there were a lot. Um, the One of the things that happened was we were shooting and our first AD um, he, he, I guess when he travels, he always puts a camera in his, his Airbnb room and he had seen on the camera, like some random person was in the house and stole a ton of stuff oh, and they called the police and my producer was staying there. My second AD was staying there and my first AD and somebody just, you know, some random vagabond came in and stole a ton of stuff. Um, luckily not everything like. I think one of our hard drives, some of our hard drives are there. Oof. We're not take, thank God. Um, and uh, it sucked um, for them. But then what happened was <laughs> a few days later, uh, my first AD's ex-girlfriend had hit him up and was like, oh, were you, um, did you use my card at Schlotzky's? You ran up like $200 worth of stuff. And then... He's like, no, but then it hit him. He's like, oh, we got burglarized. My ex-girlfriend's info was somewhere in the computer or hard drive or cart. Right. And the, then the guy who stole the stuff went and bought a shitload of food at Shlotsky's on Thanksgiving. Jesus Christ. And then so the police like traced it and found that he was staying in a, a, a motel and raided it and did a whole raid on the on the a motel room. Whoa. <clears throat> and um. They found tons of stuff. This guy had been like, he was a, I guess, a professional thief. He was stealing tons. They found, they recovered somebody's dog. They, oh, God. It's a special they, place they, in hell for dog thieves. Yeah. 
you know, I, it was bad, but it was funny because, you know, they got everything back. And so my whole crew who got, you know, the house got burglarized, got yeah. everything back except my producer. I think one of a ring that he had is maybe it got pawned off or something, but he didn't get that, but yeah, no, everything. So oh, that's good. That, that was a interesting event. And you happened, saved a dog you know? in the process. So, Hey, it's a beautiful saved ending, a dog. Man. And, I think they had to go to court for that too, like a year later or something. Wow. Um, yeah. Um, but another on set thing that happened, we were, um, I think, uh, we had, you know, U-Haul that had like a bunch of stuff in the back and, uh, a lot of the wardrobe, all the wardrobe <laughs> was in the back and yeah. our PA and my, our PA and my producer, and they'll fight to the death on whose fault this is. I don't remember, <laughs> but, um, the back of the U-Haul was left open and driving on the freeway, two oh, of no. the four leads, two, one, two, three of the four leads wardrobe flew out the back and gone. Goodbye. Oh God. Damn. And so luckily two of the roles, Robert Patrick's and Scott Hayes's, they were, their characters were wrapped. So we didn't, thank God we didn't need their, cause that was, a, that would have been a huge problem. But, um, then the other, other one was, um, Nick Stahl's wardrobe was gone and that he didn't have many wardrobe uh changes so it wasn't that big of a deal to replace that thankfully yeah. um but yeah we it, it uh flew out on the freeway jesus christ <laughs> so, man <laughs> that was two of the craziest things that happened wow looking at the movie in its finished form what would you have invested more in and what would you have invested less in and i don't necessarily mean money it could be time effort energy or money but on a limited budget, what are the things that really matter to invest in? And what are some of the things that in retrospect really weren't that important to invest in? You know, there's not like a, uh, there's not a uh, magic. There's not a set way you make a movie. I'll say that everyone has a different, is a different beast of uh, issues and circumstances. And so I, you know, the, the issues and th of of certain things I have on Josiah are, are not necessarily the the way I would handle uh, or be be concerned about on something like Bang Bang or um, other movies. So the only thing I would say is like I and it's not what I didn't invest in, but what I always invest in is over preparing and pre production. Like it's everything because I'm not a director that just hires a DP and says, "Hey, go with." I trust you and you decide the look and all that. Like I have a heavy hand in all those aspects of the movie, Yeah. but I'm very much, you get a hundred questions a day, like all day you're getting asked from people in these department heads and crew, like things you need to have an answer for very quickly. So it's just have that. I would say the biggest thing for me is just in, in be confident with like your, your vision and, and know how to communicate it. Like that's all directing is right. Yeah. Like, knowing what you want, knowing how to communicate it, um, and being prepared. Like that, that it's not something you're like, Oh, I just want to go with the flow and be organic. Hell no. Like the more prepared you are, the more you can be organic and sort of switch on a dime if need be, you know, That's but you. yeah, yeah, it's, it's, it's everything. I mean, there's definitely things that after finishing every movie, I go, damn, I did this different or I damn I wish I should but you just I don't think 
it's easy to say in hindsight, but when you're, you know, forced to shoot a scene in six hours that you would love in two days to do, it's just things you don't get everything, you know? Yeah. Yeah. But that sort of time crunch sometimes makes you think out of the box and, and you come up with a solution that's better. Yeah. So last, uh, last couple of questions, were there any resources or books or anything that was particularly helpful for your career, either in terms of creativity, creative process, directing, or just overall film career? Um, I w not books. I, I don't think I've ever read a book on filmmaking. Um, no. Um, the, uh, I, I really think it's just the, the two things. If you're aspiring and you're young, it's like w watching these movies when you're in those impressionable years was so vital to me. Cause I still think about those movies today like a lot of them and they're not even the best movies. They're not even my favorite movies even, but there's something about those movies I watched in that time period that I just can't get out of my head. They stick with you. And so it's in a weird way that kind of contributes to your own film aesthetics, hmm. you know, um, you're sort of molded by that in a weird way, or at least I was. Yeah. Um, I, I, I have a, I feel like with most films, you can kind of tell who the filmmaker is by their movies, you know, but, um, uh, yeah, I think it, it's that. And then the only other thing is just keep like to, to, you don't, you learn more by making it than reading books. And, uh, I'm not saying don't go to college at all. Like, but I didn't go, so I can only speak to like what my opinion is on the benefits of my, the way I did it. Yeah. And it was, yeah. I think exponential in, in by just making stuff. You know, you find out all these things by doing it. And so I would say that's, you know, and don't be afraid to just go and make a feature. I, I think people get stuck in with, stuck with needing to make short films or a bunch of short films and, and, and feel like, um, they need to make a web series or whatever. Like I, I, I firmly believe like if you want to really grow and, um, sort of, uh, swing for the fences, make a feature film. You have something tangible that could sell. Uh, people always need content. And if you're talented and, and, and you do a good job, maybe you hit a home run, maybe you hit a double and then just do it again. You know, it's like, I can't say that enough. I mean, the industry is changing so much right now in terms of indie films and what, like, where is that going to be in five yeah. years? I don't know, yeah. but, um, you can't stop people making stuff. Right. So, they're always going to need that outlet and movies are such a like awesome way to uh, put those things out there. So I don't know. I think just doing it and now more than ever, all that shit is at your disposal when 20 years ago you needed half a million dollars and shoot on film and all that stuff. And I think now more than ever, you can have these little like discoveries that, that are, you know, next to nothing or like a bellflower that movie we made was like a little hidden gem that year yeah yeah well i feel like that's an awesome place to end vincent thank cool. you so much man this was this is a real blast really love the movie can't wait to see what you do next and uh yeah let's do Thanks, this again brother. when bang bang comes out awesome yeah no would love to it's not horror but um 
it's uh i, I really i think it's a special one so yeah anytime man thanks for reaching out i had a good time doing cool. this with you. awesome thanks again all right here as always are some key takeaways from this conversation with vincent grashaw number one vet your actors Lots of well-known actors disappear from the limelight simply because they're difficult to work with. Talent is not enough. Your actors have to be cooperative and collaborative or else you can be in a world of pain. This is why it's critical to dig deeper into your potential hires. Speak to producers, speak to casting directors, and speak to trustworthy actors about the people you're about to hire. See if they're game for the demands of your specific production, including long hours, low budgets, and your specific shooting styles. This is vital for your lead actors, but it also goes for your key crew members. A single ego can disrupt the entire set's harmony. Subdue your vetting. Awkward as it may feel, it'll save you substantial heartache later down the line. Number two, there's an insight in every note. When gathering feedback on edits for Josiah, Vincent discovered that those who were unattached to the movie were typically more objective, even if their notes sometimes annoyed him or suggested that they missed the point of the movie. He learned to check his ego in facing this kind of feedback, striving to find the truth in every single critique. It's easy to shrug off notes and feedback, and that's often your ego talking. After your first edit, you're probably too close to the movie to spot its flaws. So heed the feedback, even if it seems uninformed at first glance. Find the commonalities in the notes that you get and dig beyond yourself to figure out what needs fixing. Number three, over-prepare. The beautiful direction and tonal unity in what Josiah saw didn't happen by accident. Vincent stressed that over-preparation can grant you the leeway to be organic when you're shooting, yet relying on spontaneity without preparation is a straight path to failure. A director's job is to be so deeply rooted in their vision of the movie that they can pivot at a moment's notice and answer the thousands of questions and obstacles that arise on the day. Seemingly paradoxical, over-preparation is your secret weapon for improvisation, allowing you to adapt swiftly and effectively to any curveball the production throws at you. Thanks as always for listening, guys, and keep an eye out for Vincent's upcoming project, Bang Bang, a gritty drama starring Tim Blake Nelson as a retired boxer who finds redemption through caring for his grandson. Don't forget to follow the show on Instagram at I'm Nick Taylor and on Twitter at the same handle. Hey guys, one last thing before you head off, and this is The Howl. How would you like a monthly newsletter featuring a recap of the latest horror news, my personal movie recommendations, updates from the show, and cool stuff I've recently discovered? If this sounds like something you'd enjoy, sign up for my monthly email newsletter, The Howl, today. You can sign up for The Howl by visiting nicktaylor.com slash thehowl. That's nicktaylor.com slash thehowl. Howl.